I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Um, it's such a joy to talk to Kirsty Gunn. Um, uh, an incredibly inspiring and adventurous uh, writer who seems with every book to do something completely new, recognisably Kirsty Gunn, but will take us in the most extraordinary directions. And for me, as a reader of hers... Um, what defines the books is this um, uh, reliably modernist ambition, structural ambition, a total faith in her readers to go with her in, in uh, difficult formal places, um, but also this uh, exuberance, this, uh, this joy, this love of language, this love of what you can do now with a novel, what, what uh, the discursive possibilities within a novel. Um, and this is just to treat this new one, and, and I think the best thing to do is to ask you to read to us I and get a flavour. With great pleasure. Thank you very much, Max. And for me, it's just a great treat to be here with Max Porter, whose Grief is a Thing with Feathers just rocked my, and I think everybody's world. And it made me leap to my feet and let out a great hurrah that someone was taking the novel in such bold, wonderful you know, to such a bold and wonderful new place. So, yes, what a treat. And to thank you all for coming, because it's a beautiful night out there, and, you know, you could all be at barbecues and things. And thank you very much, Claire, for making the whole thing happen. I would like to start by reading, um, uh, as Max suggested, from perhaps the opening of Caroline's Bikini, um, just to give a sense, perhaps, too, of our discussion. Um, we have a little bit of an introduction, but that's not the beginning as such. Is this microphone working? I shout and boom all the time, so I never know the difference. All right, I said, I'll try. But I've never done this sort of thing before, is what I would have said next, I'm sure, as it still seems a strange kind of thing to do, be involved in this kind of writing, the sort of project that was being suggested to me by Evan now. I really need you to write this story down for me, Nin, he was saying, in no uncertain terms, if I think about it fully. Really, I do. And yes, it did feel like a new kind of idea for me, this. A different sort of way to spend my time. It did. It felt new. And, you know, that thing is... Uh, it's new for Nin, who's writing this novel, and it's new for me. As Max suggested in his introduction, for each novel I write, 
I set myself new challenges and want to take myself in a different direction. For poor Emily Stewart, the narrator, who we hear from throughout Caroline's Bikini, um, the whole thing is a new kind of project. Yes, she has written short stories before, but they haven't done very well and they don't really sell. She writes copy for pet food advertising companies, and she does a bit of work for a gallery over in East End somewhere. But she's never written something large. She's never written something that maybe feels like a novel, which is what Evan Gordonston, her great friend from childhood, wants her to do. He wants her to write the story of his great love for his landlady in Richmond, Caroline Beresford. And he charges Emily with this job, even though Emily herself struggles with it. So he comes back to London. He's been living in America, where he's been working for some bank or other. Emily has no interest in any of that kind of stuff. He's come back to London. He needs to find somewhere to live. And they meet in a pub, and Nin suggests to Evan that through a mutual friend or someone that Evan's family used to know, he might make contact with a woman out in Richmond who has a lovely large house, and there's space there for a lodger. And they start to plan this get-together and how they might move Evan in and so on. And in the meantime, Evan is pressing Nin to get this story down. Here we come with a bit more information from Emily. I write a bit more information may be needed here. Writing is in the family. Book reviews. Fiction, non-fiction. The literary end of things, I suppose you could say. My father and mother are both academics, historians, and they write. And my brother, who went out with Elizabeth Gordonston and is also an historian, writes big commercial books about Soviet Russia. Along with the reviews, I myself try to write short stories, and sometimes they sell. There was a collection that came out several years ago. There was another. And I get something published in a magazine here and there, or something goes on the radio maybe, but I keep writing the reviews in the meantime. There's also some other work I have with a sculpture workshop in East London. I go over there, what, about once every couple of weeks and write catalogue copy and promotional stuff. And I work on the front desk. And there's some copywriting, too, for a small ad agency that my friend Marjorie, who's very successful at that sort of thing, organised for me ages ago because goodness knows I need the money, though I'm not very expert at it because you have to write the kind of copy Marjorie tells me that sells. And mine goes off a bit. It tends to on a whim. Anyhow, I'm diverting because, yes, Evan was right. I could work on this project he was suggesting to me in quite definitive terms. I could. For I imagine novels. I imagine them all the time, planning these stories that no one would be interested in, as I do realize, and my publishers say the same. So having a subject, in this case, that was not limited to my own imaginative outline, but was someone else's story... Well, maybe Evan was not so very out of the ballpark, as he might say in his American way, suggesting it to me after all. Listen, I'd said to him a couple of weeks earlier, and in a way, I might think of the story proper beginning here. I have an idea. We'd met at the pub at the end of my road, which is right by the tube, because Evan was in a bit of a rush on that first trip back to London when he was putting out feelers, as he described it, and had just come over for one night and was running around interviewing with various companies, I think, or organising how it would work for him at the London branch of his New York office. When you move back to London, I said to him then at my local, it will take time. 
Time to get to know people again, to find your feet, to settle in. London takes time to do all that when you've been away. It's not the same city that you left, but, I added, you'll be fine. And here's what I suggest you do. A friend of a friend of mine has a big and rather stunning, so I understand, house in Richmond. I don't know her, the friend, I mean, Rosie's friend, but Rosie told me she has lodgers and that it's quite a fun scene there. That's a quote, by the way. It's a fun scene, I said. I'm quoting Rosie talking about her friend. It's how the friend and Rosie both describe things there. I think it means there are lots of parties, I continued. But I also think it means that it's a relaxed place to live. There are children, three boys, but they're well-behaved and relaxed too, if you know what I mean. There's none of that crazy homework scheduling going on, and the friend is relaxed and glamorous and loves meeting people. Rosie knows all this, I said because she's moving out of London and was thinking for a while that she might be a lodger there herself, have a room and then be able to afford to rent in the country and have her studio nearby. I was talking this way, rambling, as though ever knew Rosie, which she didn't, though he may well have known people she knew. She said, I continued, this friend of mine has lodgers and it's a fun scene. Because I know, yes, I know, one always thinks that being a lodger... Yeah, Evan interrupted, exactly. Because, of course, everyone does know that when one thinks of being a lodger, one can't imagine anything close to being involved in a fun scene. In fact, the opposite is the case, that lodging is not a fun scene at all, but a rather more lonely, cut-off kind of human condition. A scene of being somewhat removed from the society one inhabits, actually, crouched and perching at the edge of other people's lives, inhabiting a corner of their home but not fully living there with them, as though one may have a job and even friends, but that when one returns at night to those lodgings, one is, in fact, remote from that rich network of connections. So the lodger comes into a family that is not his own family, quietly taking himself upstairs while below in the kitchen, happy times rage on without him, he goes upstairs quietly to his room, to his single bed. No wonder then that Evan said that, yeah, no wonder, I thought. What we didn't know, though, Evan and I, what we weren't close to knowing when we first discussed his possible living arrangements that night in the cork and bottle, over what would become our signature drink, a gin and tonic, of various brands and strengths and volumes, was that it would lead one day to me writing these words, Evan on the phone, constantly, it seemed, to ask how I was getting on, now that he'd tasked me with and I'd accepted the job of writing it all down, the story of what was to happen with him in Richmond. Because who would have known, who could have, that my saying those words casually about lodging would eventuate in a love affair? A large, large love that, in a way, looking at literature past, is represented by one of the most expansive and intricate forms of the romance genre and expresses more than any other type of writing a commitment to that love by way of a review in all its important and absorbing but meaningless details. We didn't come close, as I was talking, Evan into an arrangement that he would eventually make having met with Rosie first, the three of us, to discuss it in full, and Rosie making the requisite phone calls to get the process started, to knowing that this talk of lodging was to be the beginning of something. A narration, 
a process towards a story that would happen in such a strange and visible kind of way that many people might think nothing much was even happening at all. All right, I'd said. Remember? After having had that first conversation with Evan about an idea that came from my old friend Rosie, the time became the beginning of the next conversation and the next that all led from hearing about their house in Richmond to the Beresfords, to Caroline Beresford. It's where this story first began. We're just going to have a little sip of our gins. It's quite a fun scene here, with a clatter of glasses. Um, I'd like to ask you, we live in quite anti-intellectual times, and quite miserableist times, quite sad and upsetting grim times, and perhaps the literature reflects that, and certainly that some of the failings of our literary culture reflect a kind of inability to see beyond the immediate political present. So in some respects, you've written rather... I mean, it's a very surprising book, but it might also be deemed a rather unfashionable book in as much as it is robustly intellectual and adventurous in its intellectualism and also quite fun. Yeah. Um, did you... Is it, uh, the singer Beck recently said he, he, he wanted to write a fun album because mm-hmm. everything's so miserable. Is that, was there any of that behind the writing? No, not, nothing, nothing. I mean, I love the idea that it's fun. It gave me an enormous amount of pleasure that I wrote something that was funny and where it had a society that was engaging and kind of shallow and frivolous but also quite loving, I suppose, that kind of strange combination. Mm. I really never know, Max, when I begin, what's going to happen. Now, what happened with this? Emily goes on and she talks a lot about fiction and her status as a writer or not. Where I agree with Emily enormously is that stories are overrated. Hmm. You know, stories as we kind of know them and define them, or at least the idea of story has become terribly reduced. And I think in these times that we're all suffering under, There seems to be some kind of rush for the story hill, as though we can tell some simple tale that's going to let us all feel okay about things, that maybe the story can do the job for us of being morally and ethically engaged or something of that sort. Muriel Spark, great goddess Muriel Spark, talked about, and I'm terrible at quotes, but it's something like... um, you know, humour is the only decent form of art left to us because it's the only thing that will give us space to react mm. and then think. John Carey also wrote a wonderful mm. book about Dickens and humour. Mm. Similar kind of vibe, mm. actually. Mm. So, yeah, sorry, to go back to your question. So, no, I didn't know any yeah. of that when no. I began, but I just knew I wanted to write about Caroline. Mm. And I'd written a short story, and I knew the short story was boring because it was like a story. Right. And I, but I couldn't let go of that phrase, Caroline's bikini. Like it just rattled away in my head, and I thought, well, there's no point in, you know, just. I mean, we've got John Cheever. Why try and write another short story that's like John Cheever, uh-huh. which is what the original was? Mm. But Caroline and her lot, and this notion of a love affair and so on, I couldn't let go of any of that, and so off we went down this other track. Do you think, just to go back to the rushing to the hills? 
to the story. Do you think that we are in the rush to the hills, therefore abandoning or or ignoring some of the some of the more interesting possibilities of the novel? I do. How so? And I also think <laughs> I also think, as do you. I also think um, that you know something's happened to our imagination. Mm. And Alex, of course, Alex Clark wrote that beautiful piece many of us might, might have read in the weekend about uh, you know, the lack of imagination and novels, mm. what's happened to imagination. And I worry about that because, you know, the imagination takes us to a different way of thinking. It's possible for us to have all of our synapses interrupted and our positioning altered because the imagination comes in and works upon us like an engine. Can I read a little thing? Is it, is it the market that's let it down? Is it, is it, is it the buying and selling of, of literature as product that, that, well, that's, that's, a great, that's, that's yeah. not allowed modernism actually in the promise? I mean, it's, I always say this in acquisitions meetings. It's a fucking hundred years since Ulysses. Like, <laughs> have any of the questions posed by the great and formative works or, or indeed by Wolf or Mansfield and the people we'll discuss been answered adequately? And what is it that's meant that we've stopped answering yeah, them? Yeah, that's such an interesting thing to talk about. And you're... As well as a writer, a publisher, so these things are live in I'm your mind. I'm failing to answer them daily. Well, these yeah, questions. and is it? But is it to do with? <laughs> is it to do with still what we think of as a novel and the and the place that the novel inhabits in society and in the market? Is it uh, yeah, I, I, yes, and I, I think the novel, the kind of mannerisms of the 20th century realist novel, have become tyrannical and, and sort of become a system of. of um, Limitation rather than you know door closing rather than door opening to some extent, but that that may be the market. That may be a, that may be a, a lack of ambition that, that writers have had towards their readers. It may be that we stopped thinking that readers could go with us to these places. Can I read a bit a bit before you read a bit? Please. This Go is one of the this is one of the kind of uh, uh, those of you that have read the book will know that you have these footnotes at the end. <clears throat> They're not footnotes. It's end end matter. Did you intend your reader to come to them as they read or to get to them at the end? No, my publisher, my editor at Faber and I always have these discussions because I used notes in my last novel, The Big Music, which, by the way, could not have been more different to Caroline's Bikini. Mm. Um, although, and we talked although. about, oh yeah, there's, there's, I love that thing that Raymond Carver says, you look across the work and you see the landscape of a life. Mm. You know, mm. there is always a connection. Mm. Mm. Um, but I never, I never quite know myself how the reader might use these notes. All I know is that I'm interested in this process of interruption mm. because I'm interested in what it does to us as readers and as participants in the artwork. It stops us going into some kind of state mm. which might be kind of passive. Mm. I was listening, I was just driving down from Scotland, I was listening to uh, my husband's suggestion to Gotterdammerung, because I love Wagner, and I just thought, I'll have the whole opera, you know, as I'm coming down. And I hadn't heard it for a while, it was just being on my own, and what really occurred to me is this phrase, I thought I'd share with you tonight, this phrase came to me of interruption and increase, because there's something mm. very, very pleasurable mm. and instructive and also mysterious about the business of being engaged with a work of art that will constantly stop you know, you're wanting more of this. Mm, you want more mm. of that theme that's so lovely and is moving you. Mm. But then we'll be stopped by some other material mm. that gets in the way. Mm. And that process means that we're constantly conscious as readers or participants in this work of art. Mm, mm. We've been la laughing about 
Max's T-shirt, because it has on it. I think you have to sit up straight so everyone can read it. Read hard. Yeah. I was told it was a very inappropriate T-shirt, but... I, why? Uh, well, but by a male American writer who just immediately thought of a dirty reading of it. Oh, for goodness sake. You know, read... Read with an erection. It's quite a funny idea because of how funny men's willies are anyway, the idea that they'd be waiting until they were stiff enough to read Chiba. But it's also like, you know, it's just also, t- yes, exactly, total. Oh, but I just can't. Wrong. I can't read hard. <laughs> I'm tired. How can I take all my Philip Roth? Um, what I like about the end matter is that, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a cheeky reader, you know, I, 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 I cheat. And I and I am entitled to cheat because yeah. I spent money on a book and I and I fold down things and I write things and I put my no, and therefore I, I love it's some M matter. I'm going for it because no one's yeah. no one's controlling my reading experience apart from me. Yeah. And so I got to this bit and I, and I and I slightly put, I mean you put me in the position whereby I had to ask myself whether it was the absence of plot that was meaning that I was seeking some kind of gratification of explanation on, from the authorial... On the, you know, I was like, where's Kirsty Gunn's voice? And is she going to tell me how to read this book? Right. And as it happens, I landed on this, 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 this line, which actually unlocked the book for me. But then when I, I wished I hadn't read it, so that when I got there, I, I would have I realised... Do you see what I mean? Like you're, yeah. you're, you're aware of these sort of violations, but also it's a lawless thing, a novel. You can do it, do it any way you want. That's you know. beautifully put. But anyway, here we go. Caroline's bikini... The work of a Stuart about a Gordonston arranged by a gun was never to be a prose work belonging to anything other than a Scottish and modernist project with roots in the early Renaissance tradition of Petrarch and love poetry by way of a long-standing debt to writing by Catherine Mansfield and Virginia Woolf. As Emily Stewart says, the contemporary realist novel, for the most part, can go hang. (laughs) So that's it, really, isn't it? That could almost be the blurb. Yeah, we didn't think of that, did we, Anna? <laughs> um, yeah, I love, first of all, I have to respond to what you've just said. I love that idea of reading wild and reading hard and reading dangerously and that you might roam around and yeah. use a novel mm. that way. Mm. I love that idea that it's not, it's the very opposite of this kind of entertainment, feeding you this, that and the other. Although it can be that too. Of course. But to serve something that might be more, yes, dangerous mm. and that might bring about a kind of an interruption and a change. Mm, mm, mm. The Scottish novel and the English novel, we can talk about that at length. That mm. goes back to what you were talking about, your mimetic tradition of mm, realism mm, and so on. Mm. that's always thrived on here and has never been a thing up there. Mm. You know, I think Scotland has taught us how to read and write novels. Uh, here, we're just totally st- still way too in love with Middlemarch because, of course, it is totally gorgeous. Why wouldn't we be? So there's that definite north and south divide going on there. But going back to this issue of I don't know, stories, Middlemarch. I mean, you have three-page-long essayistic... Yeah. You know, eth- eth- um, you know, we actually had, to, had a chat with Brian Dillon in this shop about essayism. Yeah. The, the, the sport of essaying widely. This is what this is. And, yeah. you know, you didn't take any offence when I said to you, it's kind of an essay. It's totally an you essay, know. I think. I mean, I love yeah. the idea that it can't be described in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, for a long time, I used to call my fiction things because I didn't want to be caught up in ideas of what the novel was Mm, mm. because we still labour under the massive influence of the realist novel. And, you know, for for all her essaying, George Eliot delivers the apotheosis Mm, of mm, that experience. mm, mm. Um, 
And then Deborah Levy said to me, and again, you as the publisher will get this, she said, for goodness sake, stop using these other fancy words for your novels. They're novels. Don't call them, because I was calling them things. <laughs> and then I found out that Virginia Woolf called her novels elegies, and that made me really happy. So I was going around for a few years calling my novels elegies. And then she gave me a strong talking to and said, listen, they're novels. <laughs> I and thought you meant Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> oh, no, she would have said. But the thing is that um, I think her advice was quite good mm. because we mustn't put people off no, either. No, 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 no. You know, it's supposed to be interesting to read, not, mm. not, not scary and awful. Yeah, and we do great credit to the breadth and, and, and range of the novel if we call everything we possibly can a novel. And I think that we have this crisis in our critical faculties as a culture, in our, particularly actually in, in our review culture and in certain newspapers, of um, extraordinarily underdeveloped thinking about what the possibility of the novel is. I mean, Alex's yeah. piece was getting to this to some extent, but the idea of uh, metafictional work or... Um, uh, any any type of essaying within the novel is is met with a kind of extraordinarily mm. black, particularly I have to say when it's written by women, the absolute mm, inability to separate the writer from the work is really mm. shocking. I think in most of our reviews. Well, certainly so. this word experimental gets laid that upon gets a lot around. of women, but it's chucked yeah. around in a way that it makes me so cross because. You know, it suggests a kind of casual sort of flower arranging, actually. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the reality is, you know, I've said this before, but those of us who are interested in making different kinds of novels, the experimenting goes on in our studies mm. with the work. What we give our readers and our publishers is the result of that experiment, something that's mm -hmm. highly finished mm -hmm. and tested mm -hmm. and thought through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the experimenting is done by then. Yeah. Did you read Sophie Collins's book, Who is Mary Sue? No. Oh, I think you'd love it. I'll, I'll buy you a copy if there is one in the shop. I'm sure there is. It's about... The, 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 a Mary Sue is a, is a flash fiction term for a, 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 a first-person narrator that may or may not be the, the, the author's own okay. personality. But it's about the failing of the literary culture to accept that, particularly from women writers. So it quotes people like Rachel Cusk okay. saying... I mean, the quote from her in it is... That the my life is the raw material which I burn to put into the incinerator which eventually feeds my fiction. But ultimately, you know, question one. So is Nin Kirsty? Is a pretty bleak question to be asked now, 100 years after Ulysses, you know. Um, and you, 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 you seem to, that's what's so refreshing about this is you just seem to just go for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with a, with a, I was going to say with a bang, but it's with a ping. It's with a kind of, it's with a jouissance, like with a with a kind of ecstatic popping mm. noise, which is just faith in the reader. Inescapable, inevitable, these mm. kinds of things. The last thing I want to do is have any kind of control over a narrative or be chasing after some plot, mm. you know, seeing my ending in sight, all this kind of thing. Going back to this business of stories, you know, they are overrated. I think that when we really, all of us, think about our experience with the novel, let's just keep it to novels because I'm always in awe of music and poetry and all the other artistic genre, but with a novel, you know, you want to feel that there's something that you're absolutely not in charge of mm. and, that, and that, this, that, that you're not going to be delivered something as simple as a story. I think something's going on that we're being traded our ability to hear about experience and to have experiences that are fictional 
that's being traded off against some kind of Hollywood notion of narrative and mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. that's massively simplistic and is always about, you know, it's about this, and then there'll be this consequence, and then everyone will learn something. And going back to your earlier point, I'm wondering if it's leading towards a general kind of dumbing down so that people want... I mean, what's interesting about your lovely novel and this novel is that in some respects, you might say, we have something quite simple taking place, Mm -hmm. that you move from one state, in your case, happy, I mean, sad, so I do think if I'm to happy. (laughs) And in this, there's a kind of objection Mm. that becomes fulfilled. So there's that going on. But that's really as far as we want to get in terms of our own Mm. approach to the thing. Mm. And even then, I think probably we surprised ourselves Mm -hmm. in having witnessing those endings coming about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a very different kind of novel you end up with then than the novel that's been structured and fashioned and yeah. shaped perhaps after events that are happening or mm, may happen. Mm, you know? mm, mm. One of the curious things for me is that people will say the old, that we, we're living in an age where people are always revisiting or remixing the myths as if the myths were these, these um, archetypal story yeah. plots, which they were in, in, in some instances. But one, one thing about the myths is how very often radically modernist they seem to us now. They're usually totally. plotless. Totally. They're fucking bonkers yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. I've been reading Norwegian yeah. folk tales, and yeah. they're, utter, they're repetitive oh, yeah. in the most crazy ways. Like yeah. They give this a run for its money in terms <laughs> of like looping linguistic patterning all the time. Like, What are you getting at with this fun scene? Yeah. Why is she fixated on the term fun scene? And the Norwegian folk tales do that. Yeah. They're not. They're not stories in the French sense. They're riffs. That's yeah. the point of them. And they ask yeah. the reader to bring to them a highly developed sense of what the function of this myth might have been as, as entertainment or provocation. You yeah, know. yeah. You're creating a kind of um, a world or a landscape and asking people to inhabit it. And I was just thinking mm. that. I mean, what is the myth of the? I mean, what is the story of the Odyssey? There is no mm. story. Yeah. There's a series of scenes and a, and a series of curious transactions, mm. but a bit like, and again, going back to my Wagner thing, or you know, anything, war and peace, anything mm. that mm. I return to over and over and over again, it's because I can't get the story ever. There's mm. a constant straining mm. after something that you may think you can make a shape of, but never mm. can. Mm. One of the people it reminded me of, and I hope this—I hope this isn't a writer you despise. But even oh, if it is, I'm going to say okay, it. Okay, say it. Is, is Javier Marias? Oh. Because he likes to land on a phrase and tease it out, and then come back. So he might say that there was a, there's a professor in Oxford who his parties are quite a fun scene, and then he come yeah. back and he said, "What I mean by that?" And it's just uh, to me, it's just a competence with. The artifice of the novel. Yeah. It's before you've even got to page one, you've said to your reader, "I know you've read loads." Yes. And I don't need to spoon feed you with a beginning, a middle, or an end, or any kind. Of, I don't need to warn you that there's going to be an existential element to this, or that I might be riffing on love poetry of the fifteenth century, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. It's straight into a kind of highly developed play. It's yeah. play, isn't it? Does yeah. that feel how it is to you? Well, it, totally, it is play because once you've got, once you know that you're confident about your upper apparatus your, your mm. you know um, your weaponry your almost. weaponry and yeah. your and your your sense of form and what you're going to do once that's all in place then yes you can ask your reader to make an enormous jump mm. and know that you know the, the the structure will be there to catch them I hadn't thought about that similarity between my work and his and I've only read one of his novels but I can see exactly what you mean mm. actually well, because from I mean, each individual it, oh, scene, each, yeah, inter- in, each interaction that. between idea and human being, off he goes. Oh. 
mm. and you think, mm. where has he gone? Mm. You know, these these extraordinary philosophical digressions, yeah. and that's what this book is: is layer of digression upon digression, yeah. coming back to this artifice, this absence, which yeah. is nothing's happening here. Yeah. We're still only on the one key narrative event. She's Absolutely. come and sat on his bed, yeah. and then yeah. also the, there's something to do also with a certain kind of. Um, Uh, I don't know what you call it, like a, almost a kind of tongue-in-cheek explosion. Mm. Like there is a tongue-in-cheek explosion at the end of this, mm. which is sort of it's un, it's the uncanny, really. But like mm. it's like a, it's is a kind of highly developed modernist uncanny where you're just like, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, like take it or leave it. Because if you've been with me this long and you can't handle yeah. that, I, I don't yeah. want to give it away. But a, a, a peculiar and explosive. It's really event. peculiar the ending. Like surrealist <laughs> yeah. sort of. I mean, I just had no idea like where it was coming from. I mean, again, that was just like nowhere near that original short story. Yeah. But I think, I, yeah. I mean, I think this notion. But you're like, you just hit your gym back, and you're yeah. like, why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And the idea that the whole thing has become absolutely clearly obvious to you, if it hasn't been throughout. That you have been engaged in a work of art. You've been engaged in the play mm. of artifice mm. Mm. and the enormous deliciousness of play. I mean, part of the pleasure of writing the book was actually to get to indulge in subclauses, dependent <laughs> clauses. Like, what fun! Mm. There are even adverbs. I teach writing and literature as well as write books. And I'm always saying to my students, "You're never allowed to use an adverb unless it's in a comedy." <laughs> so I got to do some adverbs, <laughs> but those kind, that nice. kind of that notion mm. of pleasure, mm. I think, along with imagination, mm. Mm. is maybe lacking again. In it's lacking, but also so is a sort of um, sort of joie de vivre, really, about the the illusionness of everything. Anyway, what I yeah. like is when you finally get to the footnote about Petrarch, and you say, you know, you sort of say, "Do you think this is weird?" Like, he mm. fell in love with a 14-year-old girl coming out of church, who he yeah, never then, he never and, and then devoted 40 years of his life yeah. to the most complex linguistic structures of adoration, and uh, it, it, like pitiful and glorious pitiful undertaking, and glorious. you know, yeah. wonderful. Like he'd be locked up today. Yeah, um, and that's a great shame. With the, yeah, <laughs> free Petra. Yeah, <laughs> he would. He, yes, you're quite right, though. I mean, there's, but but of course, what he was doing. Was something that he made entirely for himself, and it became part of his own form of educating himself, mm, and mm. so on. So again, that goes back to this business mm. of the poor old novel sits in the marketplace mm, mm. and then has ob obligations in mm. a way that our lovely 15th-century poet doesn't have. But I do still think, Max, and as you, as do you, represent in your beautiful work, that the novel can be this other thing. It can sit there on those tables with, with all of the other kinds of books, and work a kind of magic in a way that the poem perhaps can't because it was regarded as being special. And I certainly Maybe. get a, a, I mean, I a, a kick out of um, out of the of, uh, of hybridity of, of that mm. play of recognizing that you can. Um, Ask your reader to make some decisions for themselves, and if that decision isn't being landed on in any secure way, then good, because yeah. that's more generative to have yeah. these things. You know, is it is it um, is it a joke 
And then is it a love? Are we are we reading the love triangle backwards? I like that. I like yeah. the kind of fourth dimensionality of the book, where where I'm actually realizing as I go through that the love yeah. triangle isn't the, the the unrequited love isn't the unrequited love you're describing. It's another one. Another and friend. then sort of thinking about unrequited love of of a reader. Yeah, quite. And I think like because time is life is short, so I, I wish I could reread some poetry mm. to get it better. So you're asking me to concentrate quite. Clearly, in the end, on, on what the, the, the original love poetry might mean yes. and how artificial love poetry is like—that's work I like doing, mm. and I think that we do underestimate how much readers like a bit of that work. But there's something so. F- the, the thing about this is that you can't resist the fun of it as well, yeah. and that's what's nice. Is because I mean, we should talk about gin and pubs and <laughs> and, and the sort of preposterous. Actually, I did want to ask you about the, the people itself. Because there's some great names for gin and there's some great names for pubs and you could probably reel them off your pub names. But I wanted to ask you as a, you're born in, you're Scottish but you're born in New Zealand. Mm. These are English people of a certain type. Mm. And it's again quite unfashionable to write a novel about these people. Gosh, yes. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know any of these people? Do you know and love these people? No, they're all, I made, I make everything up. No, but do you go to the end of the district line to such parties? I have been to the end of the district line. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? When I first wrote the book. I know a couple of these people. Oh, I know you do. (laughs) When I first wrote the book, though, the book was set in Ealing. And I wanted it to be in Ealing because I love the way Ealing sounds. I wanted Ealing in the book. Oh. And the only, I don't take much editing, and, but I do have wonderful conversations with Lee Braxton, my publisher at Faber. And it was Lee and my husband David and my agent Claire Conville who all said, Kirsty, it can't be in Ealing. Why? There's a swimming pool in the book. Oh. And they said... There aren't any swimming pools in Ealing. It's not posh enough. So I had to change to Richmond. Even yeah. though I went out, I took David on a fact-finding thing in Ealing, and we were like, I bet there's a swimming pool in there. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm asking for my wife. Do you have a pool? <laughs> there are pools there in Richmond. There are pools in yeah. Ealing, but there are definitely pools in Richmond. The Caxton Taylors, who lived on the road from the Beresfords, are totally loaded, and they have a pool, and they have a party, and Evan hears about the party and so on. The pool party, the bikini, you know, it's all there. This is what's there. The cocktails, I mean, they have different kinds of cocktails. But you aren't unkind about them. No, I think... It's th- not a satire of a certain way. In fact, we, we know nothing about the way they I live. think you have to love your characters, you know. John Bailey said that about Tolstoy, and I, you know, I think he's right. I think when you're spending time with a book, mm. with the people in the book, mm. with the writer of that book, I think there has to be, again, I'm using my word again, increase. I think there has to be, and your lovely word, generative. Mm. I think there has to be this kind of stuff going on. Because otherwise, you know, why spend the time? And the thing about, about the Beresfords, and there's a lot of sadness about the Beresfords. You know, David Beresford, Caroline's husband, is involved in his own story. Mm. He's taking up classical studies over the, cor- over the corner here at, um, at uh, University College of London. He's reading classics, you know. He's got his own story happening and... I love him, even though he does mean things. Mm, mm. And I love, you know, all of the set that move around the Beresfords. You know, I just, 
I think they're all great, even though, you know, they probably, a lot of them got quite dodgy politics. I like your Tory character, who yeah, always reminds Lynn that too. she's not earning enough money. Yeah, but he's also lovely. No, he's lovely. I mean, this yeah. is the thing, you have love for these people, which yeah. again is a rather unusual thing in a novel. Yeah. Well, again, this. perhaps it's that business of not wanting to make everything so black and white yeah. and so plot-driven. And yeah, yeah. But do you think an English novelist would have written this? I don't think they don't possibly would have done, because I think they would have either turned it into a kind of casual vacancy, vicious satire of yes. the kind of vapid emptiness of these people's lives. Yes. Um, or it would be fully kind of Hampstead dinner party novel, brown-nosing that, that, yes. that sort of cultural yeah. thing. And this, sort of, this is somewhere in between that. It's a sort yeah. of almost anthropological fascination with these people. And they're beautiful. Well, I love mm. that idea, that there's that attraction to them. Yeah. But and also again, you that, do that it, feels it, a bit dangerous. Well, also because you do it in the way that the erotic fixation actually is in life mm. that, that these repetition of these key things like her hair mm. her beach tousled hair yeah, her tan gorgeous, that's all we Caroline. know of her and she offers him coffee and that's yeah, sort of it and out of that like Petrarch you spin a 40 year obsession yeah cut, cut terribly short by this bonkers ending yeah. <laughs> yeah the whole thing kind of happens in it's a sort of seasonal thing because it starts in midwinter and then it finishes kind of just quite soon this mm. kind of time mm. of year we're coming mm. into the ending yeah, well, you I love to, that. Yes, yeah, so shall I read another? Well, you, you shall I? Have we got time? Because I've got no. It's about the unrequited love thing. Yeah, okay. Where are my glasses? Here. Um, I had various little bits and pieces of quotes that I might read, but I might just quickly read you this, Max. I wanted you to read this, this was the Picasso, Picasso thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. I was, Max and I were just sharing. And um, uh, the fact that both of us do that total loser thing when we go into art galleries of scribbling down stuff that they've got on the walls because we find it interesting. And I got this from... I'd put money on you being in a room of such losers. (laughs) (laughs) What a happy thought. Um, So this comes from the lovely Picasso show, of course, it's on the take. And he says, You start a painting and it becomes something altogether different. It's strange how little the artist's will matters. I think that's terrific. Perfect example of what was going on in the writing of this book. So, If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, so, we're just going back to your thing about the unrequited love convention mm-hmm. and so on. I thought that's why I might read this. Listen, Evan said again, everything about this love story defies contemporary convention. You should know that by now. You're writing it down. So you should know perfectly well that the convention we're serving is not the contemporary one, but much older. It's graver somehow. God, he said, if you were a poet, we'd be creating an epic here in sonnets, rhyming or in blank verse, but in prose, Nen, prose. It may be we're doing something no one else has done in modern life. Not that I'm aware of anyway. I looked blank myself, probably, talking of verse, but it was only because I was tired. Since talking with Christopher, he's the Tory that Max was just telling us about. Um, since talking with Christopher recently, I've become aware of how behind I was, how behind, how, how behind I was getting in my knowledge of current affairs and politics. It was like the world was passing me by. Christopher had called to invite me on one of his scary, quite martially inclined marches to do with cycle lanes and the proliferation of disabled parking bays in central London, and I just had to say no but was aware, as I was responding, how long it had been since I'd seen any of my friends. Rosie will be in town, Christopher had said. She'd love to see you as well, you know. We all would. What is this thing you're writing after all, a telephone book? It seems to have been going on for ages. And Marjorie says you won't be able to get any more work from the agency if you don't start taking, if you don't start taking up some of the campaign's slack, Emily. She's been giving you lots of chances. So how are you managing, anyhow? You need to work, don't you? We all do. The fact is, Christopher had hit a nerve. People with right-wing tendencies often do, I've found, when it comes down to the advice they give to their financially challenged lefty friends. It's because they themselves are working all the time and know how easy it is to lose money, in their case, significant amounts of it, as well as make it, of course, and keep on making it by doing nothing but thinking about it all the time, money. And it's true, things hadn't been going very well on the work front. And I did have bills that needed to be paid. So Christopher was right in his Tory way. Maybe I would miss a payment on my mortgage if I carried on as I was. This book taking me away from the world. Yet I seem to have no choice. <laughs> what, I, what I love is that I, as a reader of this book, I imagine that you, or even Nin actually, might follow me around. Yeah. And I'd be earwigging on something. And I'd hear someone say on a train, you know, We've got targets to meet. And you'd go, <laughs> targets to meet? That's very interesting. I hear this targets to meet a lot. And it would just slow life down into a series of these kind of weird language traps that we're all sort of bollocksing around in, you know, and actually without yeah. anyone ever saying how they feel. And it is like a terrible, unrequited love everywhere you look. Because yeah. none of us can get what we want, which yeah. is just some truth or satisfaction from our engagement with everyone. Absolutely. It's very, very funny. I mean, it's a fundamentally funny, funny book. Um, can we quickly talk about pubs and gin? Yeah, please. Kirsty claims to have had no knowledge that claims. gin was a big deal. Like I'm looking at their, I'm looking at the LRB's gin shelf. Like gin is huge. My brother-in-law, I was telling Kirsty, mm. is a, is a botanical a gin maker gin. in in Sydney with various hip uh, juniper plants growing in their offices and stuff. But you really didn't realise that you were plugging into one of the. I had no idea because I was writing the book. You know. Do you drink gin? 
I love gin, yeah. But what you but, I mean, the point is, anything? I know when I know when I think of a gin, I think of a gin and tonic, you know. And then I think, well, maybe I'll have a Bombay, Bombay Sapphire because that's like a really fancy gin, which I really like. And as the book started, I knew that they were going to drink gin and tonics because, as you say, it's a very English novel. Yeah. So they start with gin and tonics, and then it becomes like, yeah, well, I have a Gordon's. And then bit by bit, as I was writing it, I wanted the gin to kind of do something else in the book. So I started, well, I was making it up. No one's going to believe me when I say this. But I was making up all of these different yeah. kinds of gin. And, um, you know, I have one that's called the Dull Reaver Waltz because it's a, a part of Scotland that we love very much. And I was thinking it would be flavoured with wild thyme. And then I started thinking, fiddling with the tonics as well. I thought, well, we could have actually some really interesting tonics happening. I was making up all of these gins and tonics. And then when I delivered my book, um, yeah, straight away they Faber said, said you've I'm got sorry, the gin you've, thing you've missed the gin wave, <laughs> no, the We fo- published all our gin <laughs> metafiction last year. I mean, I couldn't believe, I really could not. I just, yeah. it was just like, it just shows how out of touch I am. I mean, it, it's embarrassing, actually. my family are always telling me I am. The fact that you said Bombay Sapphire is just incredibly embarrassing. Is it? Like, what is this, 1999? <laughs> <laughs> um, what I like is um, uh, that apparently Fever Tree uh, Slimline Tonic, which I drink right. because it's delicious. Is it? And, and it's much better than... Sli- You'd never drink a Slimline Schweppes. No, Because it's never. so sugary. But Fever Tree Slimline is good for you and... Without that metallic contain. aftertaste? No, it's got a lovely real yeah. tonic thing anyway. They're the biggest company in the world now, <laughs> Fever Tree. I'm going to try it. They've sponsored Queen's Tennis. I mean, we know that they're big. Yeah, they're big. Yeah. Um, uh, do we, uh, we still have time for questions? Yeah. yeah. Play on her roving microphone. We've got a roving microphone. Um, but yeah, I am very but you don't, What's your new, and you I don't just, have a new favourite gin or anything like that? You know, we discovered there's a gin called Kirsty's Gin. Oh. I discovered it at Dundee when I went in to get my morning coffee. Yeah. And uh, Jamie there said, you know, look, we've just got this in. There it was, Kirsty's Gin. We've Wait, had a bottle of it. Wasn't very <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd known. I could have bought your bottle as a present, but then you would have already, already tried it. Ah. Yeah. Questions? And if there aren't any, we'll just carry on talking. Just carry on drinking this gin and tonic. Hello. Um, I haven't read it, so I may be completely wrong. But you keep talking about Chiva, and you keep talking about swimming, and you keep talking about gin. <laughs> Is there a kind of swim... And I was just thinking constantly about the kind of The Swimmer, his short story, oh. The Swimmer, and that has a completely bonkers ending as well. So is that anything mm. to do with anything? Or have I just been picking up on entirely the wrong signals this no. entire no, you time? Pick, you picked up good. Nothing oh, but good signals. Good. Nothing but good signals. And that first story that I wrote had all those three elements in it. It had a swimming pool, it had the gin, and... What was the third thing? You mentioned another thing that had... Yeah, well, yeah, but that, well, I wasn't so aware of that. But yes, that was ever bonkers in. But certainly, what I'd written in the first version of this was a perfectly serviceable short story. Like, I knew I could get that short story published, you know, in a way that actually most of the time when I'm writing short stories, I don't have any expectation they'll be published. It always, you know, it's, it's never a known thing. I knew this short story was absolutely fine, but I also knew I had no interest in it because 
John Cheever had already written wonderful short stories of that sort with gin-soaked heroines and all the rest of it. So I knew that Caroline's Bikini would be a very, very different sort of story as it is. While having those elements in it, it's nothing like, it's nothing like that story, any of the, the Cheever stories or anything that you might think of even as a story. As Max has said, it constantly defies all of these expectations that's going to deliver any of that stuff. While I hope, being, I hope, and a, a very satisfying experience, I don't want to give the, the impression that I'm cheating the reader in any way, that they will have an experience that delivers all of the fullness of fiction. I think that they have to be a reader that is interested in the possibilities of the novel post-realist yeah. in order to get that full satisfaction. I think because right. it's like a simulacra. Is that the right world? Yeah. It's like a it's like a a projection world that is that where the where the scaffolding of the novel is visible all the time for you to have fun with. Yeah. If you find that annoying, yeah. you won't like it's it. Drive you I think so. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. In the same way as that if you find digressions annoying, you'll find Marius yeah. enraging. I mean, enraging. Like yes. he's the kryptonite. If you find repetition and digression, if you find it delightful yeah. and stimulating to further thought, or actually, mm. in his case, thought about translation, mm. then it's interesting because it is almost an act of translation, isn't mm. it? You've got the bare bones of a story and you're translating it into a mm. sort of postmodern context. But the thing about repetition. It is, it, it is that it allows us, and music does this too, it allows us to access a part of ourselves that is knowing but not necessarily, you know, not necessarily cerebral. Yeah. So it's a different kind of understanding. And repetition allows us to participate. Mm. Um, now, the person who wants nothing but a cerebral experience and wants to be in control in that way is going to be very unhappy about being taken to that other place. And to a fake pub and to a joke actually, party. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see the... Um, is it called The, ex the Exterminating Angel? The, the, the Thomas Addis opera? No. Uh, did anyone see that? It's a surrealist opera, absolutely insane. No. It's based on a very simple premise, that yeah. these people get locked in a house, they can't get out. No, That's I it. It's based on a surrealist movie. But spun sort of on top of that is this kind of high drama, almost almost like Hogarth on the tech, you know, like sort of Pope, okay. almost sort of like stolen letters and sort of bizarre. Anyway, but that's a digression. But it's got that. Okay. This has a kind of operatic um, acknowledging of, his, of its own theatrical conceit, doesn't yeah, it, all the way yeah. through it? Well, I mean, this is why I love opera, mm. and especially a you know, certain kind of opera, because mm. the whole thing feels so dangerous. I mean, someone described, I thought, thought this was so funny years ago, someone described the experience of being in an opera house to be a kind of, to witnessing a collective holding of breath, because the fact is that one has spent a massive amount of money even just to be sitting in that seat. Yeah. By God, you want it to deliver. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of, as well, not yeah. to mention all of the costs that go into yeah, mounting yeah, 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 this yeah. kind of beautifully ridiculous art form. Yeah. yeah I love beautifully ridiculous. That's good. That's, um, that, I love beautifully ridiculous. Yeah. I've got my current obsession is, 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 um, is the beautifully ridiculous medieval illuminated manuscript or, or, or church ornamentation this extraordinary effort for one miserable git who's never going to look at it? And then the sort of the, the, the sort of ecstasy of realizing that it might have another life in an archive or is not, you know, that I find that very exciting. Fabulously ridiculous. You're of, just um, at the end. Max has just told me he's just finished his next book. 
Well, so he's in that lovely mood. I'm in that Are lovely mood. Are you feeling mood, beautifully yeah. ridiculous about yeah, it? Yeah, I'm feeling all tingly and excited, and yeah. um, and with limitless possibilities spreading out in every direction. Yeah, and also I can justify just leafing through my illuminated manuscript book for no <laughs> reason at all. Also, I was, we were talking about attention spans with someone the other day. Um, uh, and, and dumbing down all these sorts of things and we were talking about how we've got this idea of, of, that we've got these short attention spans and we're distracted by Twitter or whatever it is we're distracted by these days and actually those illuminated manuscripts very often had the, the, the core text and its illumination but they also had, you know, little Twitter-like Marginal, diversions yeah, 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 to entertain and to distract bored yes. masturbatory monks and, yeah. and, 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 you know, like little dragons with trumpets up their asses and stuff just so you're in the middle of your divine communion yeah. you're like <laughs> 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 and that's very important yeah, you know, yeah. and, and, we, and again we go back to the ending of this book but I think it's incredibly important to have a kind of flip Literally, the, 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 like the belly of the novel suddenly mm. vomiting out mm. this, this extremely strange and uncanny twist. Yeah. Which is, which is, which is preposterous wit, you know. Yeah. Anyway, someone else should ask a question. What would you say your relationship with Nin is like? And can you hear your voice in her either during writing or afterwards? Ooh, what a nice question. <laughs> I love her very much. She's Emily Stewart, and it's only Evan who calls her Nin, because they've known each other since they were five, and that must have been his pet name for her right from the beginning. And I love Emily for her carefulness and this lovely quality, I'm talking about a lot, reticence. Everything about Emily holds back, and she doesn't press herself or her opinions or ideas about things. She tries to encourage Evan to give her more of a story than he's doing, but she withholds. And I love that about her, because I'm, of course, you know, I'm your mother, you know I'm the opposite. Constantly marching around giving you opinions about everything. And, um, but Emily is someone I'd very much like to know. I feel I recognize, I feel that Emily and I would get on really well if we were to meet and have a gin and tonic. Because I think we've got similar ideas about fiction. I think we probably write similar sorts of short stories. Mm. I like how sort of focused she is. Yeah. How you'd, you'd, all, you'd catch her worrying, teasing a thing out. You know, yeah. fiction is in some respects a celebration of the warrior. Yeah. It's for the warriors among us. You know, yeah. I, I like the fact that she'd be sort of... She wouldn't be daydreaming. She'd be thinking quite slowly. A bit like Saga Nora and there's something in, in the bridge. There's something almost autistic about her. Like, <laughs> You know, like, We've been talking about Saganora and the bridge a she's lot. She's a deeply attractive character, mm. I think, because mm. of the way that she is, has these blockages, but then this extraordinary literal. I mean, it's, she's quite yes. literal, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And whilst also being in, in, engaged in what is, frankly, preposterous, unending conceit. You know. Well, I just kind of love that idea of just, you know, it doesn't all have to be a story. Yeah, but I did kind you of know, want her to get laid at the end. Freud, yeah, <laughs> I want Freud, I want. I sometimes just want us all to forget that Freud existed, that mm, there might be mm. shapes to everything and that everything might have a meaning. And Ah, oh, so that is why. Mm, oh, mm, I see. Mm, mm, mm. Mm. But that maybe also comes from your love of Mansfield, I think, as well. I, I quite like. perhaps it might. Yeah. Don't you think that there's a certain kind of... Character A walks to character B and asks uh, the question that character A has been thinking of, and this is the circumstances, and this is the weather, and that. Mm, that's very, that will the, suffice. Yeah. Yeah. That the structure of that is so robust mm, and so well done. Yeah. You know? 
I mean, this is one of those funny novels that lives on in your mind as you, as you hear the clatter of glasses or as you encounter people. In, in almost like they're like two-dimensional characters being slid around on one of those magnetic boards, but behind mm. each of them is this sort of gulf, which is mm. literature and politics and yeah. yourself and all that. Yeah. Um, and that lovely. notion of cardboard, again, that so many use in such a dismissive way, mm. Mm. to my mind, um, you know, we might think of that as we might think of the mask in classical Greek tragedy, that the mask is there Mm. to show us that what we're seeing is something entirely Mm. artificial, Mm. Mm. but that behind the... But but the mask is there to remind us that what we're also witnessing is something that's absolutely real. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that some of that work should be our own, and then there is limitless depth. I'd much rather that than the kind of preposterously fraudulent, modelled... The mo- you know when when uh, when certain novelists uh, oh, uh, you know do that kind story. of fake shading yeah yeah you know. all the backstory yeah, coming in yeah, yeah, and then awful. on top of that you know really really is it possible to write character is it really possible mm. I mean I can think of a handful of people mm. who maybe get there but I think you know, pop them up two dimensional let them do their dirty let work them, just let them put on their yeah. mask and do their thing yeah no. final question before Claire chucks us out. <laughs> Or you, uh, 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 signed your book. <laughs> Thank you for your questions. Um, we don't have any gin, but we do have some wine, and we'll put the aircon back on. And we have books, and we've got Kirsty and Max. Thank you so much. Great pleasure. Thank Thank Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk/events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.